Hi, welcome to Hymn We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're making our way through a series celebrating the Reformation called Five Solas. Today we start our third message called Sola Gratia, Grace Alone. It's our only cause. There's probably not a person on earth who doesn't struggle with the concept that we simply cannot earn our salvation. Rather, salvation comes to us as a lavish, undeserved gift called grace. Some profound truths ahead. Here's John with part one of Sola Gratia, Our Only Cause. We're making our way through the five solas. This week we come to the third sola. We're going to be looking at Sola Gratia, Grace Alone. So you're hopefully beginning to see how important these five solas are as we're devoting this whole month of October to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So today we're going to be looking, as I said, at grace alone. Now, uh, to help you understand uh, this, I'm going to give you some background um, uh, by which this debate took place, uh, grace alone, back uh, in the medieval church prior to the Reformation, and then during the Reformation. But when you go back and you look at the medieval church, um, Two predominant themes characterize the medieval church's theology and piety. These two dominant themes were this, cooperation with grace for salvation and Jesus as judge. Um, First of all, many in the medieval church believe that God saved sinners by grace But they also taught that um, uh, these uh, sinners saved by grace cooperated with their own free will with that grace to do their part in salvation. The popular medieval phrase was this, God um, will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. That was a very popular slogan that was used. The second theme that was predominant um, in the medieval church was this, is that Jesus as judge, the gospel presents Jesus as judge. Um, The the notable uh, Thomas Cranmer scholar, the English Reformation scholar, Ashley Knoll, he writes this, he says that the whole machinery of late medieval piety was designed to shield the soul from Christ's doomsday anger, end quote. And so the medieval church functioned on the notion of forced obedience through fear of punishment. Noel goes on in his book to describe what it was like to walk into a medieval church. I'm not going to, we don't have time to look at that, but I'll just paraphrase for you. He's basically said, to walk into a medieval parish back in those days was to encounter a great big huge of, uh, picture of Jesus in judgment. So when you walked into the church, you immediately struck by this big Jesus quote Jesus, it's not Jesus, but this big quote Jesus hanging over you in doomsday judgment, quite the announcement of what they were about. 
But tragically, in recent years, um, uh, surveys, uh, studies have revealed that Protestant denominations descending from the Reformation bear a similar resemblance in beliefs to those of late medieval, the late medieval church. Let me give you some examples. Cooperation with race. Um, today's version of the popular medieval phrase, God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can, goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. Um, a Barna survey just a couple of years ago discovered that nearly 50% of evangelicals affirmed this slogan. And 50% thought it was a direct biblical quotation. 40, excuse me, 84% thought it was a biblical idea. And that percentage rose with attendance at evangelical churches. So almost 9 out of 10 surveyed believed God helps those who help themselves. That slogan comes from Benjamin Franklin. It was one of his famous sayings. He was a deist. He was not a Christian. Um, Ligonier Lifeway study, I referred to this last week, but I'll give you some more from it this week. In 2014-2016, uh, Ligonier Lifeway study found that 36% of self-identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this statement. Quote, by the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven, end quote. God helps those who help themselves. Um, in a Christianity Today article that was just recently published, it was entitled this, 500 years after Reformation, many Protestants closer to Catholics than Martin Luther. And then it goes on to cite a Pew study to back up these, uh, this, this uh, point. According to a Pew study, only 35% of Protestants believe that faith is all you need to get into heaven. In addition, the report says that half, 52% of American Protestants say that both good deeds and faith in God are needed to get to heaven. God helps those who help themselves. In Luther's home country of Germany, 61% of Protestants believe that good deeds are needed for salvation. In John Calvin, Switzerland, 57% agree. So simply put, in this study, over half of the Protestants who are surveyed in the study affirm the popular medieval phrase, God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. Now, here's a second uh, predominant theme that we see eerily similar in the contemporary church today. Jesus is the judge gospel. Much like the medieval church, we hear a great confusion of the law and gospel in the church today. And this confusion of law and the gospel today, uh, in the church today turns Christ, the Christ of the gospel, into a judge who threatens to damn sinners and who seeks their obedience through fear of punishment. Um, we hear this Jesus is judge gospel from a uh, famous, uh, quite read author. His name is David Platt. He has this best-selling book called Radical, which is a massive confusion of the law and gospel throughout his whole book. 
Platt's gospel is a very stunning resemblance of a medieval moralist preacher who would turn Christ into a judge and set forth fear of punishment to produce transformation in a sinner. Let me give you some examples from his book. It's all throughout his book. But in chapter 2, Platt says that he wants his readers to take a step back and, quote, look at the foundations of the gospel. So his whole chapter is devoted to the foundations of the gospel. But misunderstandings of the uses of the law um, abound, and he mistakenly attributes the spiritual effect of the law to the gospel throughout the entire chapter. Let me give you some examples. Quote, the gospel reveals eternal realities about God that we would sometimes rather not face. And I'm thinking, what would this be? Kindness? Love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, propitiation, expiation, atonement, reconciliation. Quote, these realities that the gospel reveal include a God who is a wrathful judge who might damn us, end quote. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The gospel reveals God is a wrathful judge who might damn us. Put another way, he says, the gospel confronts us with the hopelessness of our sinful condition. Now, whereas for Reformation theology, it is the law that brings us up short and quite short, this is a task that Platt erroneously attributes to the gospel throughout his book on so many occasions I couldn't count them. Listen to what he says, quote, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God. You are dead in your sins, and in your present state of rebellion, you are not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. And then he concludes, this brings us to recognize, quote, the beauty of the gospel, Unfortunately for readers, none of those propositions reveal to us the beauty of the gospel. It reveals to us the terror of God's law. It reveals where we stand apart from Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says it is God's law that discloses our sin. He says, Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in contrast to the medieval church, Ashley Knoll points out that the English reformers in the Reformation maintained that fear of punishment could not produce such an inward, all-encompassing transformation in a sinner. He says they understood that only the assurance of divine love made known in free pardon has that power. You see, the reformers did not define Christ as revealed in the gospel as a wrathful judge who might damn us. But they discovered rightly and proclaimed that the gospel reveals Christ as a gracious Savior who redeems us. 
So in contrast to the medieval church's teaching that turned Christ into a judge, listen to what Martin Luther says in response to this medieval view of Christ. Quote, this sly serpent really knows how to present Jesus Christ, our mediator and savior, as a lawgiver, judge, and condemner. Against this temptation, we must use these words of Paul, which, in which he gives the very good and true definition of Christ. How do you define Christ? Listen, Christ is the Son of God and of the Virgin. He was delivered and put to death for our sins. If the devil cites any other definition of Christ, you must say the definition and the subject are false. Therefore, I refuse to accept the definition. He says, I am not speaking vainly here, for I know why I define Christ so strictly from the words of Paul. For Christ is not a cruel master. He is the propitiator for the sins of the world. If you are a sinner, therefore, as indeed we all are, do not put on Christ a rainbow as the judge, for then you will be terrified and will despair of his mercy. No, grasp the true definition of him, namely that Christ, the Son of God and of the Virgin, is not one who terrifies, troubles, condemns us sinners, or calls us to account for our evil past, but one who has taken away the sins of the world, nailing them to the cross, and driving them all the way out by himself. In brief, Jesus is a savior to sinners. And then lastly, in contrast to the medieval church, which held that a sinner cooperates with God in salvation, the reformers rightly proclaimed that fallen men are saved by the unprovoked, undeserved acceptance of God for Christ's sake alone. In other words, salvation is sola gratia. It is by grace alone. And so this brings us to this third sola today, uh, grace alone, sola gratia. Now, what we've learned is that all five solas are inseparable, and you can't have one without the other. So we began with sola scriptura, scripture, because it alone is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, is the church's final authority, inerrant authority, it does not err, infallible authority, it cannot err. And the reason we stay with scripture is because... We learned last time that the scripture alone leads us to Christ alone, solus Christus. Paul said to Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom, listen, that leads to salvation through faith, which is in, that faith is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures alone lead us to saving faith in Christ alone. So Paul's statement about the scripture leading to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus is simply a way for Paul to say salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide was a confession, as we'll look at next week, by the reformers that it is by grace alone we are saved. Sola gratia, grace alone, is never left dangling by itself. It is always closely tied to solus Christus. 
So as we think about Sola Gratia this morning, there are three key questions I want to explore with you as we look at this uh, grace alone. First, what is grace? Second, what does grace look like as God applies it in the life of sinners? And third, what is the ultimate purpose of grace? So let's look at the first, what is grace? If salvation is by grace alone, what is grace? This brings us to the real heart of the Reformation debate over grace in this Latin phrase, sola gratia. The first thing we note about grace is this. What is grace? Grace is not a thing or a substance. Grace is a person. That grace is a person stands in stark contrast to the Roman church, both then and now, which teaches that grace is a created thing. It is an impersonal power that transforms the sinner. The Roman church taught and still teaches that grace is like a medicine. And this medicine is infused into you by means of the sacraments to help you cooperate and merit further gifts of grace. But it's important to keep in mind that the reformers never alleged that Rome denied the necessity of Christ, the necessity of grace, the necessity of faith and salvation. That wasn't the, that wasn't the debate. What the reformers rightly denied and charged Rome with was denying the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of grace, and the sufficiency of faith. Um, listen to Michael Horton. He explains, he says, Rome believed in grace. It was oozing from the pores of the church through a sacramental system, especially the practice of penance. But it became clear as the debate progressed that not only the sufficiency of grace over against the believer's merits was at stake, but the different definitions of grace itself were in play. What is grace? How do we define it? Grace is a person. It is not an impersonal force or substance. It's not a medicine. And so sola gratia, grace alone, is never left dangling by itself, but is always closely tied to solus Christus, Christ alone. In Ephesians 2, verse 5, Paul says... By grace, you have been saved. In the context, what he means is, by Christ and his saving work, you have been saved. When God gives us grace, he gives us nothing less than himself. Grace isn't a substance mediating between God and sinners. Grace is Jesus Christ in redeeming action by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of people. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Paul customarily begins all of his letters in the New Testament with this greeting from God himself. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? We encounter this gracious greeting from God every week in the liturgy in our worship 
This greeting is the triune God's response to the congregation's invocation, cry for help, cry for mercy, plea for salvation. And so every Sunday, we begin the worship service calling upon the triune God who has delivered us in his son. And when we call upon him, how does he meet, with, meet us? He meets us with this gracious and surprising announcement greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we note about grace is that grace is not an impersonal force. It's not the force be with you, right? It is not an impersonal force of the universe. It is a person, Jesus, in redeeming action towards us. Second, grace, listen carefully, is God's demerited favor. Grace is God's demerited favor. Now, to understand grace, and I'll get back to that, you have to have, understand, you have, to have a proper understanding of sin. The reformers disagreed with the medieval church with respect to the human condition. What is Rome's view of the fall? Rome teaches, to be sure, that no one deserves salvation in any strict sense. The Roman church is not pure Pelagian. Rome's view of sin is what we call semi-Pelagian, which means this. Man is fallen, but there still remains a little small island of righteousness tucked away, left in the sinner's heart, whereby he or she can cooperate with the grace of God in salvation. And so the Roman church taught and still teaches that God will not deny his grace to, do it to those who do what lies within them. In this view, God, the grace of God, consists in God's leniency. God is lenient. The fact that he requires the smallest obedience rather than perfect righteousness, God is lenient. The grace of God is lenient. God, Rome maintains, has decreed this covenant according to which those who do their best, assisted by grace, will attain final justification as if they merited it. So God accepts the believer's imperfect righteousness. It's called congruent merit, which means giving your best sincere effort, satisfactory effort, is meritorious before God, rather than what they call condign merit, which is strict and perfect merit. Just give your sincere best effort, and God will give you the rest. Luther was schooled in this kind of theology, which is known as covenantal gnomism. It's what Paul addresses in the book of Galatians, and we spent three years in our church going through, so I'm going to remind you, getting in by grace, but staying in by your obedience and good works, and completing yourself by that. And But Luther and the other reformers strenuously rejected this medieval system of covenantal gnomism, which later became officially sanctioned at the Council of Trent. So that's Rome's view of the fall. What was the reformers, the biblical view of the fall? Here it is. In contrast to Rome, the reformers rightly insisted that man is so sinful, he has so fallen, the, the fall is so pervasive that no one can cooperate with God in salvation at all. 
As a result of the fall, the whole person is radically defiled and pervaded with sin. Intellect, mind, will, soul, body, even all of creation itself is under the curse, Paul says in Romans 8. Everything is fallen to the core. And so post-fall, all who are in Adam are not, according to Rome, merely sick, needing medicine. All, Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, are dead in trespasses and sins. They need a savior for resurrection. What can an unregenerate sinner do? To this, the reformers replied, nothing. Because they said grace is not leniency. Grace is not a medicine that aids a sick man to cooperate and save himself from the sensual passions of his body. Grace is God's demerited favor given unilaterally in Christ by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, not only at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout the whole Christian life. So in the context of a fallen world that we live in, grace cannot be defined as leniency. Grace can certainly not be defined as merited favor because no sinner can make such a claim against God, right? Thanks, John. That's part one of Sola Gratia, Our Only Cause. More from the Five Solas series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.